This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Sarah opens her witty, wise, and intimate memoir, Smile, with these three sentences. Ten years ago, my smile walked off my face and wandered out in the world. This is the story of my asking it to come back. This is the story of how I learned to make my way when my body stopped obeying my heart. These words illustrate the reason Rule has been awarded the MacArthur Fellowship, been a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, produced over a dozen plays and three previous books, all of which I have adored. She manages to be clever, humble, succinct, and slyly philosophical. Sarah writes, my years of writing plays tells me that a story requires an apotheosis, a sudden transformation, but my story has been slow. The nature of the chronic, which resists plot and epiphany. Yet her story, a high-risk pregnancy with twins, a dire liver condition, celiac disease, and a decade-long search for a remedy to Bell's palsy has everything a reader might want in a memoir. Honesty, humor, and most profoundly, an exploration of how a misalignment of our interior and exterior selves creates a crisis of identity and connection. Sarah, let's, uh, Sarah welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Just so that our listeners know, uh, this is a first after 300 and something episodes. Sarah got a flat tire on her way back from Providence, and she has been game to do this from Zoom in her car on the side of the road. So extra welcome uh, to Sarah Rule. And extra apologies for disappointing people earlier and being beset by difficulties. So thanks for well, having me as, as I am. I yeah. So Sarah, you. as you know, it happens. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so let's start with the news that you were pregnant uh, with twins. Here you are about to open your play in the next room or the vibrator play at Lincoln Center. They put you on bed rest. And most of us dream of bed rest is like a time to read all those unread books, consider uh, the meaning of life. What was your reaction to this prospect of twins and bed rest? Honestly, I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, I think I say in the book, I, I had two kinds of abundance coming and I wasn't sure how the collision would go. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure my body and mind could handle all that abundance. Uh, and, and I was grateful for the bounty, but it seemed like a lot. Um, and my, my great aunt Laura had had twins, but apparently they were stillborn, um, which I didn't know until later. And twins can run in the family on the mother's side, skipping a generation. And so I think I was also just worried about whether my body would be able to deliver the twins safely. Mm. And, you, and, you, and you, had ha you have a daughter, you had an older daughter, Yes, I had an older, I still have an older daughter. Still Anna. have. <laughs> yeah, thank God, who's three and a half years older than the twins. Um, and, and so you go on bed rest, you, uh, your play opens, uh, and it's the play, it's one of your plays that got uh, nominated, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. You deliver these babies, there's, there's a lot of <clears throat> concern and risk about that. And then you're in the middle of meeting with a lactation nurse and discover, how, how did you discover then that you had Bell's palsy? Well, I remember she was sitting in the corner and, you know, I knew how to breastfeed basically, but I didn't know how to do two at once. So she was <laughs> teaching me something called the football hold, which is how you hold two babies at once breastfeeding. And she looked at me and said, your eye looks a little droopy. And I thought, well, that's, that's a little rude. And I said something as a joke, something like, well, you know, 
I'm Irish thinking about my great uncles who, you know, have these crescent eyes and after two gin and tonics, their eyes are a little droopy. And she said, um, no, that's not what I mean. Go look in the mirror. So I looked in the mirror and this whole side of my face was completely sort of fallen down and paralyzed. And uh, I have a lot of doctors in my family. So I thought, well, uh, I've either had a stroke or I've had Bell's palsy. And my mother had had Bell's palsy and um, it turned out that's what it was. And so the big, obviously the title of, of uh, the book, most of us do not necessarily think a lot about our smiles, right? They're just kind of instantaneous. But right. one of the things that you talk about, and, and I thought a lot about, one of the most famous smiles ever um, is Mona Lisa's. Mm. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is that her um, uh, facial muscles are not engaged in the smile. Uh -huh. And yet Leonardo da Vinci um, was known for scrupulous studying of the anatomy and the bones in the face and surely would have known what needed to happen when you were smiling. Mm -hmm. So as a result of going through Bell's palsy and the compromise on your smile, how do you think about what Leonardo da Vinci was, what was he saying about a smile by doing that? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. And people have studied that painting for years thinking that there's something spurious about her smile. And the reason they think it is because the eyes are not acting in concert with the lips. So was he trying to say there was a secret? Was he trying to say she was secretly pregnant? She was hiding something. She was actually a self-portrait of Leonardo da Vinci. She was actually a man. So the idea is that when when the eyes don't match the, the, the mouth, people wonder why. And the spontaneous smile, the mark of it is the eyes crinkling. So I think that was another hard thing about Bell's palsy is it makes it look like, look like your, your smile is not spontaneous. So it's not sincere. And, and you know, the most fascinating um, part of, of the book, and, you know, we're leaving, we're, we're leaving out a lot of the funny stuff that you talk about, all the all the wit I've seen in your plays um, over the years is in the book. But the most marked thing is this idea that um, I think you talk about it in the in the uh, Buddhist way at some point that was interesting, that the idea that physically producing the smile creates the sense of peace during meditation mm -hmm. and that the physical impacts the emotional. Mm -hmm. So what was that like for you where now the smile, the physicality of the smile was not available to you, that that actually impacted your capacity to feel joy? I think it did. And I think the Buddhists were aware of that technology long ago. You know, they'll say in meditation, smile while you meditate because it, it creates the feeling of joy or serenity. And when you can't smile, I think, I don't know, I don't know exactly what's going on physiologically, but I think you don't get as many um, happy hormones, you know, coming through the body and to the face. And it's interesting with acting. And since I'm a playwright, I'm deeply aware of all these different acting techniques of um, some actors saying, oh, I go from the outside in, or I go from the inside out. And the idea that you go from the outside in as an actor means you try to find the neurological pathway, say to cry, and you mm. just try to reproduce that um, as opposed to a method actor would try to find a memory or a feeling internally and then express that on their face. But I think with Bell's palsy, it really disrupts the synergy between the inner and the outer. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
For dry January and beyond, there's no better time to try Shirley. Shirley is on a mission to provide an alternative wine option for those choosing not to drink. Maybe you're trying to be healthier and cut out alcohol for a stronger mind and body. Maybe you're looking for more energy every morning, whether you're working nine to five or are a full-time parent. Or maybe you're just looking to elevate your potential in 2022 with better sleep, more productivity, and become a better you when you lessen your alcohol intake. Whatever the reason, Shirley is the first non-alcoholic wine for wine lovers who don't settle for just good enough. Crafted by a talented team of winemakers, Shirley makes delicious, refreshing wine that doesn't compromise on taste or your health. Rather than a poor bottle imitation, Shirley spent nearly a year working with the finest winemakers in California to make wine. Then they simply removed the alcohol. What's left is a non-alcoholic wine that tastes just like the real thing. Shirley is great for anyone that loves wine but needs to cut back on drinking cares about their health and wellness, or just wants to be the best version of themselves without the hangover. You can swap your regular after-work wine routine for Shirley, or bring a bottle to a friend's house for a wine and cheese night, or even add some fresh squeezed juice to any glass of Shirley at brunch for a memorable mimosa. When you're stressed out or sick, but love the habitual nature of wine, try Shirley instead of reaching for the regular glass. And now, Just Right Book listeners can visit www.highshirley.com backslash JRB and use code JRB to receive 20% off all Shirley products. That's www.highshirley.com backslash JRB and use code JRB to receive 20% off all Shirley products. And Sarah, the other thing it made me think about, because, you know, obviously during the pandemic, we've been wearing masks and, you know, we've been reminded of this idea that the eyes are the window um, to the soul. Now, the left side of your face was paralyzed and it was only into extended period of therapy that you could even blink. Mm -hmm. But did you feel that your eyes were incapable of expressing the what you might have historically expressed through your smile? Because I always think about now with the masks that you get an idea of where people, what people are, if they're smiling, if they're happy, if they're sad, if they're angry through their eyes. But seemingly that really didn't happen. I think that because the musculature on the eye is also producing expression, um, unfortunately with Bell's palsy, you know, it, you're still not getting a whole range of expression on the side that's paralyzed. So for yeah. instance, your eyebrows raising. So if I raise my eyebrows, you know, I can do it much more on one side than the other. Eyebrows are so crucial in you know, mirroring someone else's expression or showing interest or curiosity, huh. or furrowing, furrowing your brow, you know, actually I, I, my furrow is pretty good. <laughs> um, <laughs> A first rate furrow. <laughs> first rate furrow. But yeah, I remember when my mother, my own mother was sitting next to me during one of my plays, fashion play, it was opening night and she was sitting on my left-hand side and she leaned over and whispered, are you not pleased? And I said, no, my face is just paralyzed. You know, so it was upsetting to me that someone that intimate couldn't look at my face and see wonder or curiosity or approval. Yeah. And so how did this begin to feel to you in terms of being connected to the world? I mean, did you, did it motivate you to want to withdraw did it, I mean, what started um, emotionally happening? I think I started to withdraw more and more. And I think because I'm a writer, the observer stance is very natural to me. And I think I just went even further and more deeply into that stance. So in a conversation, I'd just be much more apt to observe. Um, 
or at a party, I'd be much more apt to observe, or I'd be apt to not go to a party at all. Um, and I think, you know, just in terms of having children, I was always behind the camera, you know, not in front of the camera. I was always looking at, and I realized later I was looking for some old pictures and videos of the twins. I was so worried at the time that they wouldn't feel my love and my joy. Mm -hmm. But I realized later looking at these videos that my voice was communicating the love and the joy and the interest, you know, that, that, that was still present. So I do think there are ways we, we compensate with other senses and other abilities. And, and, you know, I thought about in the, in the book, when you, you talk about the worry about your kid's reaction, you mentioned Alice Walker's dedication of her book to her daughter, where she writes, who saw in me what I considered a scar and redefined it as a world. Mm. Would you agree with that? That is how your kids understood you and that they didn't necessarily even fathom your worry? Absolutely. I mean, we talk about unconditional love from parents to children, but one thing that's incredible is unconditional love from children to parents and their sometimes total acceptance of the whole person that you are. And I remember after I wrote the book, I was talking to my editor, Mary Sue, on the phone and my daughter, Anna, was overhearing our conversation. And when we finished talking, I said, oh, Anna, was that interesting to you? And she said it was. And she said, mom, I always thought of your face as kind of like a house, a beautiful house. And one day a wall suddenly fell down. <laughs> you kept trying to rebuild it brick by brick, this house, and you couldn't quite do it. But wow, all, all we saw when we looked at you was your was your face, which to us was our house. You know, we didn't, we didn't see that a wall had tumbled down. We just yeah. saw our home. So I thought, well, God, if you, if you Jeez. said that 10 years ago, Anna, I might not have written this book because I felt so seen by her. Uh, it, you know, this morning, uh, do you get, do you subscribe to letters of no? Uh, yes, I cast? love that. So I do too. And uh, this man sean usher uh writes it or produces it and it was very funny this morning his email wrote that he was a little blitzed because it'd been three weeks since his baby was born and he you know he shouldn't even be operating heavy machinery and so he just had snippets so one of the you know like snippets of letters and one was from juna barnes and it seems so appropriate to this conversation. The quote was, is, there is always more surface to a shattered object than a hole. Mm. Mm. Wow. Isn't that great? You know, it made me think about, isn't it Japanese pottery yeah. that feels that the beauty of a shattered uh, piece of pottery glued back together is more beautiful than the original yes and i love that so much that process i'm forgetting the name but you know the detailed with the with the gold brush and the gold leaf over the crack and i think in a way you could say that the whole process of writing this book was was that process of 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 gold leafing the parts back together but with words and and did you feel sarah that the writing of the book gave a cohesiveness to how you felt about these 10 years? It did. I think that I had pressed the feelings down so deeply. I just didn't want to look at them. And so writing about it, creating a narrative, creating a new story about it, rather than kind of the story I'd been receiving from experts about my face, was crucial. And I think even in the most literal sense, I think I got better because I was avoiding doing anything uh, to help the face, partly because the neurologist I saw said it wouldn't help. But in the course of writing the book, I thought, well, I'll try anything that won't hurt. I'll just investigate. And it turned out physical therapy helped me a great deal. And I didn't even start it until I was writing the book as kind of part of the investigation. 
Yeah, yeah. So there were two things that occurred to me uh, that this is reminding me of. One is, you know, in many, many cases, I think you say in the majority of cases, Bell's palsy um, disappears within a short period of time, like it did for your mother, like it did for Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. Um, and yours went on for, you know, a, a, over a process of 10 years. Mm-hmm. But do you think it, it made me think about would you be better off if you were told, look, this is just what it's going to be. So learn to live with this. Or or did the prospect of there potentially being a solution help? Or did it delay you coming to accept it? I think in my case, uh, the lack of hope given to me by my neurologist was not helpful yeah and made me feel like he was in control of the narrative and he was sort of saying nothing you do will help the only way you'll get better is experimental neurosurgery so it made me feel like and by the way the 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 words experimental and neurosurgery i think should not be put together (laughs) (laughs) i was not about to embark on it so it made me feel as though I had no agency. So I, I, I think for me, um, it, it wouldn't have been helpful early on for someone to say, there's nothing you can do, just accept, just accept this as it is. And it wasn't true. I, I did get gradually better. And I was told that there's very little chance of getting better after six months, but in my case, it wasn't true. So I think in so many medical predicaments, there are outliers along a spectrum, but Western medicine can treat you like the center of a statistic and, but you might be an outlier every which way. So they might as well give you a little breathing room. Yeah. And you know, the other, the other thing that that I was reminded of reading the book, but you think about as people get diagnosed with things or they can't get diagnosed is that we want to believe that medicine is all science. I mean, your husband is a doctor and, but you know, we learn that it's an intersection of art and science because yeah. share with our listeners all the different things that you tried um, in an attempt to get muscular uh, strength back. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, chiropractory, <laughs> acupuncture, PT, um, I, I mean, I tried whatever, whatever someone would throw at me, but I think for me, acupuncture and physical therapy probably helped the most. And, and as you said, you didn't really, you were eight years in, right? Yeah. Or by the time somebody recommended physical therapy. Yeah. And no one even recommended it. I just kind of found it on the internet. I looked and I remember seeing something called mime therapy for for bell's palsy developed by someone in the netherlands and i thought oh great mime therapy you know if someone had told me there was mime therapy as a theater person i would have ran to the nearest mime and and you know asked (laughs) (laughs) Um, no one had recommended physical therapy because i think it hasn't been well studied and people are scared of giving people false hope but in my case you know, I'd gone to a physical therapy really early on when I had Bell's palsy and an unfortunate thing happened where I was trying to make all these expressions in the mirror, probably looking like Cosmo and singing, singing in the rain and that one amazing sequence. Anyway, I couldn't make any of the expressions. So my face looked really odd and someone took my picture without my permission and said, oh my God, that's crazy. Like, dude, that's crazy. What's going on? Oh boy. And took my photograph and um, I felt so humiliated that I thought, well, I won't try physical therapy again. That was terrible. But when I tried later, 10 years later, first of all, I went to a woman, not a man. Secondly, my nerves were, I had more access to my nerves than I did at the beginning. But the third thing was Elaine, this woman I saw had had Bell's palsy herself. So rather than saying, okay, look in the mirror and do this expression, she would say, look at me and try to smile. And to me, this was crucial. It was sort of 
not what's your mirror, but who is your mirror? Mm -hmm. How can we make your muscles stronger to improve function? And I think I'd been thinking for too long about what I look like rather than what my face can do. And so for the, the physical therapy was really reorienting for me in terms of thinking of what can my face convey? What can I do? And then smiling at this physical therapist, Elaine, with her smiling in return, felt like a completely different process to looking in the mirror and having a man tell me to grimace or smile. Mm. It, you know, the, the most profound part of reading your book to me was this idea that we depend on the external mm. to convey the internal. Mm. And I wonder, did, were you surprised at how much this externality, if that's even a word, actually hijacked who you, who you saw yourself as internally? Because it goes not just to the notion of having Bell's palsy, right? It goes mm -hmm. to the idea of beauty and how women feel that they're judged, measured, valued by their beauty. And to me, that was, you know, that's the universality of the lesson of, of your story is how do we, how do we, particularly as women, manage to not make the external dictate who we are? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I think you say it so beautifully. How do we manage to not let the externality measure our self-worth? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the face is not the soul. The face is not our actions, nor is the body exactly. But I think there's this sort of in-between space that's very curious between the face and others, between the face and our own emotions. And I think you're right that when that's hijacked, you said it's discombobulating. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's just quite disorienting. And I think, you know, as women who are... Um, say serious minded or interested in the life of the mind or interested in activism or feminism, we think we shouldn't put any stock in how we look, you know, as a good feminist say, but on the other hand, how can anyone be not affected somewhat by how they look? It's in, in, in a way it's not, it's not human nature. So I, I also think there's some self-deception for me anyway, that went along with feeling like, well, I'm a feminist, so what do I care? Why should I care? Why do I care? Yeah. You know, and speaking of feminists, uh, so I, I, I thought about this old story um, or a story that happened a long time ago. One of the uh, quotes on the back of your book is from Eve Ensler, who I guess is now referred to as V, and we can right. talk about that for a sec. So she says, uh, Sarah Rule's ravaging uh, memoir smile is that rare and gorgeous melding of gem-like literary insights, raw honesty, heartbreak, and radiant wisdom. It took my breath away for real, which is pretty great. But I had dinner many years ago with Eve Ensler as, at a book event, actually, mm -hmm. and her play on the body had mm -hmm. just opened. And she was saying that everybody she had run in, every woman she ran into had body image issues. Mm -hmm. So I had said to her, well, you know what? I don't. I have a problem with my face. Huh. You know, I, like to, I don't like my face. Huh. And she said, Roxanne, don't you think your face is part of your body? <laughs> so, so Sarah, did you with your face impacted and not your body. How did you feel about that distinction between your face and your body? Did that, did that enter into any of it? It's interesting, that sort of Cartesian split 
Um, I mean, as a writer, I'm, I'm probably not terribly embodied in the first place. I mean, there was probably already some stitching together of, of soul and body, right. head and body that needed to be done. You know, I probably um, needed more of that coherence anyway. Um, but it's, it's interesting that I was reading a study about depression and Bell's palsy, and apparently there is just no... Uh, correlation directly between the degree of quote unquote disfigurement and the degree of um, depression that people experience, which is similar with body dysmorphia, right? Like yeah. what your body actually looks like is nothing to do with how much you love or hate your body. And similarly with you, with your gorgeous face, you know, there's, there's nothing objective about it. And certainly I watch my sister on Zoom calls and I can see her hating the way she looks because I know my sister and I see her right. adjusting her glasses or her makeup or making expressions because I know she feels deeply self-conscious. So I know it's not just Bell's palsy sufferers who are forced in this weird Zoom age to endlessly look at their yeah. offices and <laughs> feel like they're in a kind of circular purgatory. Sarah, speaking of your sister, one uh, piece of the many pieces in the book that I was very touched by is your father mm. and his persona. So share with us what your dad was, was like and the impact he had on your life despite um, dying so early. Mm -hmm. Well, my father was a very gentle person. And I've been thinking about the word gentleness lately. I don't know why, maybe because the world doesn't feel very gentle right now. And the, um, how effective it is to be gentle. Anyway, I think my father was very beautiful and effective father and he was very gentle. He used to take me out to a restaurant every Saturday to eat pancakes and he would teach me the etymology of a word. Um, and so all those words stuck with me because I knew the story of the word and he was very playful and he was quite wise and he died of cancer when he was 52. And I felt like I never, he never knew I became a writer. He never knew my children, never knew my husband. So I feel like he, he sits on the prow of the ship with me, you know, yeah. when I'm writing. You know, somebody um, said this to me recently, and both my parents uh, are deceased. And I really like this notion that you can actually talk to your parent in the sense that if you give it the space and the quiet, mm. that you actually know how they would comment or advise you do you think that's true for you and your father I think it is yes and I don't know that I've had dialogue with him where he's told me something you know in words but I I feel what he would what he would want to yeah. communicate I've, I have had dreams with about him where he's been quite direct actually even in my choice of husbands like I remember dreaming that I introduced him to my present husband and he said yes good choice good. <laughs> stick with Tony yeah exactly um Sarah this reminds me of another element of the book so you were baptized a Catholic yeah um you meditate would you consider yourself a practicing Buddhist yeah and so you say in later in the book is you use the line that the more Buddhist I get, the more Catholic I get. Mm -hmm. How do you uh, tell me what what that means to you? And I'm because the other thing that you talk about at one point is that, you know, when you um got Bell's palsy, you thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do what you, you're supposed to do. I'm going to pray that I get better. I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to do this if I get that. And you, you feel dishonest doing that. Yet I wonder how 
how being a practicing Buddhist informs how you think about prayer in general. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember reading Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal. I think she's such an interesting, you know, literary Catholic. And she talks about grace and the problem of getting grace and not wanting to ask for something (laughs) from God. She said, I've been reading Mr. Kafka and thinking about the problem of getting grace because you can't get it. You know, it's just supposed to be bestowed on you. Mm -hmm. So you know, the good Catholic isn't even supposed to pray for an outcome, you know, I felt. And I think when I said in the book that the more, the more, the more Buddhist I get, the more Catholic I get, it's something about the more spiritually minded I get, the more I feel my childhood faith. It's always there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I lost faith in Catholicism as an institution I think long before the, the sex scandals, um, but, you know, hadn't practiced in a long time, but the Dalai Lama um, always talks about the religion that you had as a child being imprinted on you, partly because it's your first language of religion. So he kind of encourages people not to become Tibetan Buddhists who aren't already. He's like, you already have religion, like keep your religion, you know? Mm. It's like thinking that it's sort of encoded in a way. Um, so yeah, the image of the childhood sled, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have so many problems with um, the institution that is the Catholic church. And yet the more I'm interested in religion, the more I, the more I have that as a bedrock in a funny way. Yeah, and what do you think's attract, attracting you to religion? I've always been really interested in the invisible world and in God. And as a child, I would want to talk with my mother about God and who God was and how we were made. And I think theater is a kind of secular worship ritual, you know, um, godless worship ritual. And I love ritual. And I love the questions about how to be a good human being on this earth and how to use our time well. Mm -hmm. And I do think a lot of philosophical and religious traditions have been thinking about that for a long time. So it's not necessary to completely reinvent the wheel. Yeah. You know, Sarah, this funny analogy just occurred to me that when we, I was brought up Orthodox Jewish and Mm -hmm. that I think when you grow up that way, we actually conflate, like we're talking about the exterior with the interior So I think as I'm listening to you that growing up with a structured religion like Judaism or Catholicism, we've sometimes been put off by the exterior of that religion, which actually camouflages some of the spiritual Mm -hmm. things that we all search for. And it seems like it's hard to shed the structure or what's become some of the common, but you, you know, ways of thinking about it with the reality that they are a spiritual structure for us to become a better person. Mm. And whether that's a relationship with God or... And in a way, it goes back to the question you were asking before about the body as a container for all of this, you know, spiritual material you're trying to communicate. I mean, I think we do need form. We do need containers. We, we have these institutions of religion that help us contain structure, our quest to be good, our quest and our quest to be in community. And yet, you know, I think with Buddhism, you're always looking at the form and the emptiness inside the form and um, how you get to the the emptiness bit. But I I think so many religions are wrestling with that question of here we are with these bodies, these containers, and yet we have all this invisible world information we're also trying to receive and transmit. And it's, it's the great mystery. And so I suppose 
you know, getting back to your, your first incredible comment about the, the Japanese gold leafing art, um, Bell's palsy in the good sense, let me into those cracks, you know, those portals. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. I call those fun expected moments, and I get those from FunJet Vacations. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all of your vacation needs, including flights, hotels, transfers, and excursions. FunJet Vacations offer vacation packages to your favorite destinations, such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. A FunJet vacation creates lasting memories of nonstop excitement. Right now, for a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 off on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself with where you can go at funjet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. I want to cover uh, work for a minute because what reminded me of it is what you said about community. So Alice Walker once wrote, women writers should only have one child if they hope to remain writers. With one child, you can move. With more than one, you're a sitting duck. And when I look at, when I, when I read about the sense of community that every play seems to have, mm. and I think about you're raising three kids and three kids under the age of five, how how have you been able to do this? Like, how did you manage this um, existential crisis of remaining a writer, despite what Alice Walker said? Yeah, I think probably three pillars. Um, my teacher, Paula Vogel, who said, you will continue to write. And she has a just a great clarity about her. And my husband, who really knows how essential writing is to my life and identity and kept trying to structure home life so that I would have room for it. And the third person is my babysitter, Yang Zam, who um, was essential. And I think, you know, we, we, we talk to writers and artists who are mothers all the time without talking about the nitty gritty of childcare. Um, or who was washing the dishes when yeah. they were composing a particular poem. Um, but but for me, Yang Zem was a huge bedrock in terms of my being able to write through that time. And did you feel like, I mean, you tell a story about an artistic director who was hideous in his comments, which you can share with us, but did you feel like your theater and work community became an element of that or... Or not really. You that that's just what you had to do. I fear it's just what I had to do. I think the theater is just starting to think about motherhood and parenthood in its structures and think how it can be more supportive. I think historically, it's so rare being a mother in the theater. Um, is it? You just, you just kind of suck it up and and actually try to hide it. Um, is it still? Is it still true, Sarah? Oh yeah, I, I I hate to say it, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Lynn Nottage is is one of the few mothers who you might also see on Broadway, and there's some women directors who are mothers, but it's it's pretty rare. And I, you know, I remember when I would ask the the theater community is a great community, and they love human beings, and so if you ask. So I would ask Lincoln Center, can I have a room for breastfeeding? And they would say, yes, you know, they're wonderful human beings, but they just haven't been structured with mothers in mind because mothers haven't been 
sitting in a Broadway green room needing a breast pump. Right. So it's, it's new and it's changing. And I think um, the more women artistic directors there are, the, the more it will change. You know, in, in closing, I want to um, talk about this poem that you say is your favorite poem called One Art by Elizabeth uh, Bishop. And I won't read the whole poem, but I'll read um, the beginning and the end of it. It's, do you know it by heart? Should I let you say it? Gosh, do I? The art of losing isn't hard to master, even though, actually, you better do it. I might mess it up. And then okay. Uh, the, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. And then at the end, I'm jumping ahead, even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like a disaster. So at the end of the day, when you, when you finish the book, Sarah, after 10 years of, the, you know, an arduous, difficult, journey did you feel like you did you feel more like you lost something or you gained something I think at the end of the day I feel like I gained something I mean I love in that last night line by Bishop you know though it may look like in the little parentheses write it yeah and I thought <laughs> like disaster you know write it down, write it down. I, I can hear her saying, um, for one thing, I learned that I had celiac disease, which can be lead to all kinds of other terrible complications and which probably led my father to have cancer and die early. Um, I learned very late that he had celiac disease by looking at his baby book. Um, celiac is also genetic disease and he didn't know he had it, but I was looking at his baby book partly while I was writing this book and found that it said, you know, pyloric spasms, baby rule, uh, celiac disease. And I thought, oh, I thought that was amazing that somebody wrote that in the album. Someone wrote it in the album. It must have been his mother, I think. And it was thought to be a pediatric disease. So we never knew. Um, So that that felt like one of those buddhist parables of the maybes you know it's like the the son gets spared from going to war because he has a broken leg so so it's like the farmer's luck this the neighbors say oh you broke your your leg what bad luck and the neighbors say maybe because then he doesn't have to go to war so i got the bell's palsy it's bad luck maybe you know but i found out i had celiac disease so so that's really been helpful um and I think it helped me gain some understanding of the human condition. So mm-hmm. I never, I never take that for granted. Yeah. You know, I'm going to close with something that you wrote um, in the book, which I thought I- I'm going to write this in my journal to keep it with me. Cause I think it's so beautiful. You, so you write for some reason, What I had always seemed to know about art, that perfection was not the goal, that the appearance of a perfect craft was static and sealed the heart, whereas imperfection and the messy particular had the power to open the heart. I forgot to apply, I forgot to apply that to parenting or my own face. Loved your line, that line of imperfection is a portal Mm. and stop thinking of a smile as a flash of symmetry, but instead a flash of affinity. Mm. Thank you. That was, you know, I, and I think, um, Sarah, and it seems like that's, you know, what I took away from the book is 
you know, not this idea of accept yourself for who you are, which we hear over and over again, mm-hmm. but this notion to understand that we're, we all are a bit of imperfection. We're mm-hmm. all, you know, the pottery put back together. And it is, as you say, a flash of affinity. Mm-hmm. I believe it is. I think perfection is actually quite alienating. And yet we're in this world that wants us to have perfect surfaces. So it's almost as though the world of social media wants us to be continually alienated. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, and, and isn't that what's happening? I mean, I think yeah. all these studies are showing that's in fact what is happening because yeah. if you're not perfect and everybody else is looking perfect, you start feeling more and more removed from that ideal and therefore more and more anxious and unworthy. Yeah. Yeah. We have to take pictures of ourselves as the cracked pottery more often and, and give the, give each other the shards. Mm. Is that what you would hope a reader takes away from your book? I would. I hope that the the book is, you know, a comfort to people who are going through any kind of chronic illness, but also a bid for a love of imperfection and asymmetry in a world that insists we be symmetrical. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. So Sarah, do you think we'll get a play out of this? I don't know. I think the book could become a play theoretically. Um, because it's all in the language, but I, but I really wanted to write it as a book because it felt so intimate and interior mm-hmm. and, you know, not dramatic, um, in the usual way. So who knows? It remains to be seen. I don't know. I'm, you know, we're Yale rep subscribers and I'm always excited. Oh, yeah. I live in New Haven. Um, oh, and I'm always excited when I see one of Paula's plays coming or one of yours. So oh, thank you. I'll, well, I'll wait for the next one. The rep has been such a home to me. And anyway, I hope I can stop by and either see the bookstore, wave hello to you or sign some stock. I, I feel just terrible about the the weirdness of the day and the car and the idiocy of it all. So it'd be nice to see you in person. Well, yeah, I w- I, well, let's make that happen. And you know okay. what, Sarah, it worked and it was fine. What, what What's your line about um, it's good enough? It's good enough, right? That's right. Good enough. We got it done. Dayenu. <laughs> Dayenu is right. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, have a safe ride the rest thank of the you. way home. Okay, thank you so okay, much. Okay, thanks so much for being thank such you a sport. Thank you for your patience and your incredible, brilliant questions. Um, I really appreciate it. All right, Sarah, be well. Okay, you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. We've been talking to Sarah Rule, uh, the author of Smile, the Story of a Face. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.